This episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by CRE Launch Pro. This online commercial real estate program is designed to take you from beginner to pro commercial real estate investor with access to all of my courses, our online community, and monthly group coaching calls. Learn how to confidently buy your first commercial property today at www.crelaunchpro.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast. We are back with the Investors Roundtable here today, joined by Dave Codre at Greenleaf, Logan Freeman at FTW Investments, and Brian Adams at Excelsior Capital. Going to be diving into Real Estate Syndication 101. These guys have collectively syndicated hundreds of millions of dollars of their real estate, and we're going to be diving into the absolute basics. How can you get started in this? So we'll be covering how we got started in syndication, why you might or might not want to become a commercial real estate syndicator, and how we've managed to scale these operations. So, Brian, I'm going to kick it over to you first. Uh, just give us the story behind, you know, how you got involved in commercial real estate syndication, and, and tell us a little bit about your your first deal. Yeah, thanks. Um, I appreciate it. So, let's kind of <laughs> be fairly honest, um, because I think a lot of folks out there are not so honest when it comes to their first deal. You know, I'm married into a very affluent family. And so the way I got into commercial real estate was kind of multifaceted, but in terms of the first deal, you know, my father-in-law committed $100,000 to what at the time was our fund one vehicle. And he made two introductions for me to people within his network and then said, hey, you're on your own otherwise, which at the time was very frustrating because he could have stroked a bigger check and he could have made a lot more introductions. In retrospect, it was probably one of the best things he ever did for me because it allowed me to go out and build this skill set that has allowed me to scale a pretty decent sized company at this point. This is 10, 11 years ago now. But the, the first opportunity was a really small building on Music Row that a brokerage relationship brought to us. Um, and it was a total mess, honestly, in terms of how we were able to source it, how we ended up closing it. We kind of fell backwards into a great outcome for our investors. You know, um, Tyler, you're familiar with this part of the world, but 10 years ago, Music Row was kind of a CD rundown area near Vanderbilt. And now it's become like this great sub-market and we were able to flip it to a developer that wanted to take down our property along with an assemblage to build a an apartment building, which I'm sure they did great on. And so it was a good outcome, but it certainly wasn't the investment thesis. It wasn't the business plan. It just kind of happened. And so a lot of luck went into all of that. But raising the capital was definitely the most challenging part. We had this piece from my father-in-law. Um, and we went around, I went around town just having coffee with anybody that was willing to meet with me and, um, it was fairly painful. So that's kind of the story behind it. Um, do you want me to go into why you do or don't want to be in this business or are we going to go around? Yeah, let's, we'll get that, uh, we'll get to that here in a minute. Let's, uh, let's hear Logan's story. All right. So. I got into the business by serving as a vendor to a, a successful real estate fund, right? So my job was to be a cog in the wheel of the machine that they were running. And so I kind of worked my way from the inside 
out, so to speak, and was able to uh, really get some good experience on the acquisition side and underwriting side and understanding rehab and, and construction costs and all of these things. But what I didn't have any exposure to was the legal structures or how they raised any of the money or anything. And so for me, I knew I liked the idea of uh, syndication and I thought I could do that, but I needed to go learn. And so I did a, a couple different things. Um, Samuel Freshman's book is behind me. You guys can't see my uh, my bookshelf, but Principles of Real Estate Syndication might as well be the textbook on real estate syndication. And then Joe Fairless has a great book on best real estate advice ever, I think, uh, or apartment syndication. I read those two books and that kind of got my wheels turning. And then I started attending conferences. So I went to the Real Estate Guys Secrets of Successful Syndication. So I just tried to continue to get this knowledge and and uh, at a conceptual level first, right? And I said, okay, I, I think I get it from the theoretical level. Now, how do I apply that and be effective, uh, you know, on the application side? Well, that's where it took a lot longer, right? Because um, there's a lot of different pieces that you have to put together. And so for me, I decided to go uh, learn the asset classes that I was interested in owning uh, through the broker's world, similar to what I had done at the fund on the single family home side that we did at scale. So I just started to broker multifamily and neighborhood retail shopping centers here in Kansas City. And and also knowing that you need money to buy real estate deals. And um, especially on your first one, you might have to put more in and or, um, you know, it's good to have skin in the game on these on these projects. I decided to start small. And so I went the JV route and found one investor uh, that I thought uh, was going to be a good brokerage client. And instead of of just brokering him a deal, I said, look, I, I think you need help uh, with boots on the ground here locally in, in my market. And so let me be that for you. And for that, I'm reading out of Joe Fairless's book on how he structured a JV deal early on. And so I'm, I'm on the phone with him reading this, this structure, um, you know, and, and go through this waterfall and all these different things. And I was able to buy uh, with him two properties um, with him putting up most of the money and he had the balance sheet and me kind of just in Kansas City running point on those transactions. Then I started to kind of take that that model after I got that done and and completed and said, okay, what what do you need to have to be able to do this at scale? And so I'm big on mentors. And so people who have done it before you is always a good place to start if you can get access to them. So I just started meeting with people um, in, in Kansas City and, and I found some good mentors that really helped me understand uh, the the big components of this business. And, but what they I think they did that was probably most prominent was say, you shouldn't do everything. And if you try to do that, you're gonna you're probably going to lose. And so he had me go through strength finders and the Colby assessment and all of those different things that we kind of talked about on the first one. And I started to overlay that with the commercial real estate world and the syndication space and said, okay, out of those components, which one would I be best at? And then I tried to fill the gap, uh, the gaps that I had uh, personally with business partners. And so that took another 12 to 24 months to find those folks. And um, that's what's allowed us to kind of be in this business and um, continue to scale is, is each person has their own defined role and we work within that sweet spot uh, or at least try to, right? I mean, at, at some point you're going to wear a lot of the different hats, but 
if you at least have some sort of organizational structure and uh, you have the right people in the right seats, it, it works out a lot better. Um, so that's kind of how we got started and how I got into the the business. It's um, you know since 2017, so I guess six years ago uh, to kind of where we're at you know today. But I would say you know first deal, I'll I'll, I'll skip the JV kind of deals that I did. Uh, first project for that we actually raised capital on and and you know really did a syndication on I mean it was um, you know early on in my career somebody said hey if you can uh, build a, a list of, of people that you're continuing to communicate with on a regular basis that's going to be extremely valuable so even during my w2 jobs I would have a list of a couple thousand people that I had connected with on LinkedIn or just in my network and Put them into a constant contact and i was reading a lot of books at the time so i would just write book reviews and overviews and people found a lot of value in that and so i did that for like two or three years and then once i started to do real estate deals i started to translate some of that business knowledge into investing and kind of pivoted the message a little bit and uh, started to actually connect with those individuals and they had followed me for a few years and or was able to raise some capital um but but also, I will say that I had to make um, probably 2,000 phone calls to, to raise our first, I think, $700,000. Um, because even if they were responding via email, I mean, it was still calling people, having meetings. And um, now we have a better process for that. But back then, it was just kind of the old sales you know, techniques that I had utilized in my previous jobs was just really connecting with people. Dave, what about you? That's, a, that's the very intellectual approach. It's impressive. I, mine was probably more of the, I got started pretty young and I was like, I want to buy the cheapest piece of property that I can possibly find. So I was buying townhomes that were like $18,000. I like, it don't get much cheaper than that. And I just fixed everything up on my own and I did that for years. So, and then my, my first like real syndication deal, we bought, we kind of like merged into some property management and in uh, Athens, Georgia, around some student housing. And then we're like, okay, we're going to build some of these like rental townhomes, basically, which 15 years ago, you could build them for hundred and a quarter or so. And even that still syndicated, sell it to other investors. But I remember that, you know, we did the student housing turnover, which is a week long. And I had some investors that came in town. I was like, guys, we're going to go out to Athens and we're just kind of do the turnover and hang out for a little bit. And they were like, okay, this sounds fun. We'll do it. They didn't know that meant that, hey, we were going to paint townhomes for like five days straight and sleep on the floor. They they haven't come back. They haven't come back to any of our property turnovers since then. They still invest, but they're like, we're not doing that. So it's my first deal was very much hands-on, do as much as you can yourself. Uh, it's the cheapest way I knew to get anything done. And, and eventually that just kept scaling as, as we were able to find, find more opportunities and always is looking for people to pitch in because you run out of your own money at some point from buying stuff. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty prevalent problem. I mean, even if you're not constantly out there, you know, finding new limited partner investors, you'll, you'll run into their capital too. We found that problem out about uh, 12 to 18 months ago because we went on a buying spree in 2021 and I realized, wow, we've, we've kind of tapped our groups out. Uh, you know, my first deal, I first heard about real estate syndication at a mastermind actually that Dave used to be a part of um, called GoBundance where uh, Bruce Peterson, uh, it was down in Austin. Bruce was talking about syndication and, and I was sitting in this room and I was just mind blown. 
because I had, I had, I guess, cut my teeth in the commercial real estate world with a development group where the the two partners were older. They had all of their own capital already, and they self funded their deals. They didn't want to deal with investors, so I never even knew. I mean, obviously, I knew that you could, you know, find investors, but I didn't realize that like syndication was was this the option that it was, where you could just go out and raise capital from people fifty to one hundred thousand dollars to two hundred fifty thousand dollars at a time, and you know, get a whole deal. So ended up putting my first one together. It was very similar to you, Brian. I found a mentor um, that uh, he basically said, hey, I'll do this deal with you and I will, uh, I'll, I'll basically cover any gap that you might have, but don't expect that to happen. You know, you're going to go out and you're going to do everything on your own, but I'm going to lend you my name and my balance sheet for the loan. And, uh, you know, let's go do this project. And Man, raising capital is tough. Um, you know, there was a it was a four hundred thousand dollar raise. It wasn't that big, but you know, we had six or eight investors in that. I had met them at a local real estate investors group here in town that I'd been a member of for a few years, and um, it was a little twelve thousand square foot office building back in twenty nineteen that we ended up converting into seventeen micro offices. So they were all like two hundred and fifty to five hundred square feet. And uh, despite the pandemic, which we delivered in January, at least up pretty well. But, you know, when we were going through it, I ended up having three or four investors back out the week before closing because one of the guys was a big residential guy, like owned a hundred houses. And he had initially said, yeah, like I'm in, this would be good to diversify my portfolio. And then he just, the more he thought about it, the more he couldn't understand how commercial real estate was going to make any money and called three other guys and told them, hey, I'm backing out of the deal. You should too. The week before closing. It was unbelievable. And, you know, of course, here I am. I'm trying to wrap my mind around what a, a private placement memorandum is and get it, you know, running to everybody's houses, trying to get them signed. And now I'm dealing with this. Luckily, we ended up finding a couple of investors before um, closing the next week. And then my partner ended up filling uh, the gap that we ended up having because of those investors. But uh, yeah, it was wild. It was uh, definitely an interesting entrance into the syndication world. But it sounds to me like, you know, everybody here kind of has a similar story where it's, you know, you didn't just blindly jump into this out of nowhere. You had a partner, you had a mentor, you'd been working in the industry in some aspect. And I think that's really important for somebody that's new to the business to consider. You can't really, I mean, sure, you could probably just jump into syndications, but it's a lot easier to kind of dip your toe in the water first. I mean, what do you guys think? I, yeah, I think anything's hard to just jump into. It's you got to find some way to just get involved or learn from some angle of it. Like Logan was saying, mean, even if it's a vendor relationship, it, it could be the brokerage side. Really just finding some way in where you can learn and absorb as much as you can from, from a transaction. Brian? Yeah, I mean, specifically in regards to the capital raising, you know, this adage of, ask for money and get advice, ask for advice and get money. <laughs> you know, you should be building up kind of like what Logan was saying. You should be building up your pipeline of contacts and raising when you're not raising is kind of how I think about it. So start building out your brand, your kind of worldview and without asking for anything, right? I think the longer you can ask, the more runway you have. Um, Alex Hermosi talks about this a lot. So the longer that you can just be considered a subject matter expert without asking anybody for anything, and that could be being a vendor, a third-party service provider, a principal, 
you know, at a different facet of the business, the better for sure. Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a very interesting point because I, I mean, now that I'm thinking back on it, the reason that that guy partnered with me is a pretty big syndicator here in Nashville was because I knew that he had syndicated a lot. He and I met in uh, the entrepreneurs organization here in town. And I reached out to him and I just said, Hey, I know you've put together a lot of offering memorandums. Would you mind, you know, giving me some input on my offering memorandum? And he read through it and he was like, I want to do this deal with you, which wasn't my intent at all. Um, but he, he was very interested. Awesome. Well, yeah, let's, let's, let's dive into the other thing that, that you should always be doing is, and I found extremely valuable after reading a book, um, by Keith Ferrazzi, I think it was never eat lunch alone. And, uh, I eat lunch alone almost every single day. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I work through it most of the time, but the concept being that you always need to be networking. And if you're in this business and you're, uh, not great at, or you don't feel comfortable with, um, telling people what you do in a very clear and concise way and, or just talking to individuals. It's uh, probably not the the right space to be in in regards to raising capital, and you need capital to, to do real estate deals. Now, I have seen it work both ways, where you have just that person who's gregarious and they just you know can meet with people, but then they have no knowledge of you know what the actual offering is. And then I have the folks that are very analytical; they understand the business very well, and it's it's a it's a little bit of an art. And when you bring the right people into uh, the process. And so I think that Oren Claff's book, Pitch Anything, is a fantastic resource from the structure of how to pitch projects. Because I don't ever walk into a room where I know another analyst is going to be without my head analyst with me. Like, that's just not going to happen. He built that model. He knows what cell D23 on tab 24 is, and I don't necessarily. Conceptually, I can get it. I'm bringing the relationship. I've, I've definitely done a good job communicating the thesis. But then when you get into that analyst frame, you need to be ready. And if you're not, um, personally, you need to bring that person who is to, be, to, to, to fill that void for you because you'll lose a lot of people and people want to try to control the narrative of you know rents per square foot and competitors and all the different pieces of the components. But you need to control the narrative and you need to have the right team in, in the right time uh, of the process. You need to always be comfortable kind of telling people what you do uh, on a regular basis in a, in a really easy way. So like for syndication, for example, that's a big word and it means a lot of different things just depending on what market you're in or what industry you're in. But what I try to say is like, think about going out to a restaurant and versus cooking a home cooked meal. Right. So like everybody can understand that. And it's like what a syndication is, you get to go out to a restaurant, you have a menu brought to you, you're served, you get to pick what you want. You don't have to clean up the dishes and you go home with a with a really full belly. Um, but at home, you have to go to the grocery store, you have to prep the meal, you have to cook it, you got to clean up the dishes, you got to do all of the work. And when I say it just like that, I mean, I think everybody listening could probably get a, a pretty good feel for which one is which. And and I try to just break that down to, to folks that can really just understand that at that granular level. And I think my daughter, who's four and a half years old, can probably understand the difference between those two things. So um, I, th I think that's a big piece of this. And, and understanding the communication psychology is extremely important. 
I, I like that analogy. I'm going to have to steal that, man. That's a pretty great, succinct way to to put that. And also, Logan, at some point, we're going to have to see your library, man. I feel like you've got a book for everything you talk about. It's impressive. Well, I, I didn't have my, you know, my, my dad and my mom, they were not necessarily, you know, well-versed in finances or investing or anything like that. So yeah, I, I've spent, you know, seven years reading about a thousand books and um, not just just reading them to read them, but trying to actually, you know, ingrain that into my knowledge, um, you know, base. My main library is at home. I've got probably 150 books here at the office, but my main one is is at home. Yeah, and you walk into it, everybody's kind of like, wow, what what is this? <laughs> got a whole room dedicated to it. I love it, man. Well, that uh, that kind of brings me to a, a, another question. The, the chicken or the egg, should you find the deal or find the investors first? I get that asked all the time. And, you know, there, there's this old adage, they're like, hey, if you find a great deal, the money will come. And I, I just don't think that that is a true statement, but I hear it all the time in real estate. Dave, I'm going to lob this one over to you and we'll go around the, the room. What does everybody think about that? I think you need to find an opportunity. That opportunity could be money. It could be a great deal. It could be, you know, a way to get in and operating something from the management side. I think you just got to find an opportunity that that gets you in the door uh, to move it in the direction you want to be in and just do a little bit better every time you do it. So I, I don't think you can wait around and say, I'm going to wait till I find the perfect deal. It's probably never going to come. And waiting around to find the person with the perfect check for you, probably not going to happen either. So I think you just got to look for a good opportunity in, in one of those avenues and then work your work your butt off on the other side of it to, to fill in the side you don't have. Yeah, that's true. Logan, what are your thoughts? Well, I'm going to break down what I think sales is, which is manufacturing opportunities out of thin air. And if what Dave said is true, which I do believe is, then opportunities do not just float out there within thin air. They're always connected to some body. And so that is extremely important to remember. So the more folks that you have in your network that are doing interesting things, that have opportunities or know people that do, and you are connected to them and you're communicating to them in an effective way, then you're, you're really in a good spot. So I don't think it's the chicken or the egg. I think it's the chicken and the egg. And depending on your prior knowledge, experience, capital, and time, uh, those type of constraints, then you can really start to understand which one needs to come first because somebody might bring you an opportunity. So then you need to bring maybe the investors or somebody brings you a bunch of investors and you have to go find the opportunity. So I think they go hand in hand and not necessarily uh, it's an or, it's an and. Brian? Yeah, I think it's a function of how easy or you know painful you want this process to be. I, I think you can find a deal, and if you make enough phone calls and you knock enough doors, you can raise capital, right? If you want to do this efficiently, I think people do go about this the wrong way as a first-time entrepreneur and sponsor, which I think a lot of your audience is. So I'll kind of go through my my usual spiel here, but you know, going back to my old adage about the advice of the money, I think the right way to do this is before you have an opportunity, go 
and find a hundred people that you know would take a phone call, take a meeting with you, and you rank them from most affluent, most sophisticated to least affluent, least sophisticated, one through a hundred. It's not a judgment call on them as a person. This is just kind of the exercise, right? And you go to that number one person on the list, the most affluent person you know, and you go to them and you say, hey, I'm thinking about doing some real estate investing. Have you ever done this? Oh, you have? Okay. What did you like about it? What did you not like about it? If you were to invest, what would you allocate? How would you want to see the pitch? What would you want to see in the deck? What would the return metrics want to be? What would you want the reporting to be? Like everything, right? You can probably cover it in 20, 30 minutes. And you go through that list, one to 100. You can probably do this in 60 days if you do a lot of virtual phone calls and Zooms, et cetera. And you just take everything that you received as feedback and then you find the deal that fits the profile of what everybody wants. You bring it to them in a way that is solving the problem that they have. And then when you find the deal that fits within the buy box, you start at number 100 and you run through your pitch 100 to 1. That way you're not wasting your bullets on your best prospects. You're working through the pitch. You're learning. You're getting the pushback. You're getting the weird tax questions that you don't need the answer to. That hopefully by the time you get to person 50, your conversion rate's going to be higher probabilistically. And you can start actually maybe potentially closing some folks. But I think a lot of times people go out there, they find this beautiful, shiny object. It's like the perfect deal. And then they go to the market and they try to cram it down their throats. But if it's a $600 million development deal in a tier one market, and it's an institutional LP raise, and all you know is like your rich uncle, you're just not giving yourself the opportunity to close that deal, right? And if it is a beautiful deal, but you can't raise money around it, that's art. It's not a business. You need to be able to raise capital to acquire these things to have a business. Man, that's gold. I just wrote that down because I think that that's a great exercise. I mean, when I when I was going through, I sold Cutco when I turned 18, right? Graduated from MBA, first sales job I ever had. And week you know, one, uh, while you're in training, they have you put together a list of at least 100 people that you can call. And I ended up putting together like a list of 300 people. Well, out of that graduating class, I had by far the most contacts on my sheet. I had the easiest list to call because I had all their numbers right there. I could sit down and pound out you know, the phones. And guess who sold the most in their first 10 days? Me. But it's because you spent that time preparing ahead of it so that you're not having to think as you're going through that process. I think that's, I think that's great. Billy's saying, uh, love that, Logan. Um, let's see. Doster group is saying that's a good exercise, affluent or sophisticated. So I like it guys. Well, listen, a lot of people talk about the pros of commercial real estate syndication and real estate syndication in general, right? Cause it, you know, this applies to multifamily or really any type of, of real estate that you want to do. And there are a lot of pros, obviously we wouldn't still be in this industry if, uh, if there weren't a lot of pros to it, but there's also some cons and and I think that those are things you've got to be aware of going into it that you're going to have to deal with. So I want to hear from each of you, Logan, we'll start with you. You know, what are the pros and cons from syndication in your perspective? Yeah, I think the tough parts are the things that a lot of people don't really 
really talk about, which, you know, are anything in regards to the SEC and regulations, right? I mean, you think about what we're doing here, we're exempt from the SEC, which is the Securities and Exchange Commission, but it's through a regulation that we have to stay exempt and we're not, you know, creating a, a security for, for investors. And so they're pretty strict guidelines in regards to the raising of the capital um, and how that, how that process works. And there is a learning curve for sure. And there are many folks uh, that do not do that correctly. And um, if something were to happen, I imagine would probably fail some sort of, of audit or, um, you know, investigation, so to speak. So I think that that's a, that's a really big regulation piece that you need to really understand. And there's some great, you know, attorneys out there that put a lot of information out. Um, and caveat here, you will get mixed information out there as well. So I, I recommend going to the website and really familiarizing yourself with that because there are different types of ways to structure these opportunities. And, you know, I, I do think that a lot of people, you know, try to stay in this joint venture type of agreement, which is great in theory. But, you know, if there's an investor that's giving you, you know, capital uh, and not really doing anything material on the project, I think that's how they define a syndication, right? Is when you pool resources together and if somebody's passive, meaning they're not in the day-to-day, -day, then you're doing a syndication. So you need to make sure all those legal documents are are in check. You know, as a broker myself, I I get audited from the Missouri Real Estate Commission, the Kansas Real Estate Commission. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm always trying to stay, you know, up to speed on all of our files and, and different things like that. And that's also changing rapidly as well. You know, with the, the Jobs Act of 2012, that's really what opened up the door for most syndicators out there, which was, you know, uh, put in place by the Obama administration, really geared towards startup businesses to try to reinvigorate the economy. And what it did was allowed real estate folks to buy real estate in a business and let people invest in that. Um, so that was in use di digital marketing and social media, what we're doing right here to do so. And so uh, through that, though, there have been provisions, there have been changes and there's crowdfunding platforms. Now there's all these different pieces and that can get one really costly for, for folks to get the knowledge, but also to put those legal documents together. Um, but then also just the accounting and the taxes, right? I mean, if we're raising capital from investors, we have to realize, you know, I think I have 65 investors on one real estate project here in, in Kansas City. And, you know, that's 65 different people to speak with on a regular basis. It's 65, you know, K-1 forms that have to be filled out correctly. And there's, there's just a lot of administrative work that has to be done. Now there's been technology that can definitely help that, but if you don't stay on top of that, you can get yourself in a hole really quickly. So, you know, everybody talks about doing the real estate deal and getting those returns and all of that, and that's all fine and dandy, but there is a lot of administrative and operational work, not just on the real estate side, but just in the business side to keep everything compliant and up to speed. So that'd be the first, the first con, I guess. I mean, that's of any business, but something that's not really spoke about you know, that, that much, but we think about a lot from the infrastructure standpoint. And I think the other thing is, you know, you can really get caught in a bad time in a market. I mean, I don't know if anybody here would have thought that uh, we would have the, the fastest rate hike uh, in history um, when we did. And, you know, if you were doing a, let's just say a floating rate construction deal when lumber prices went up 300% and then your debt started to go up, um, you know, you know, by 500 basis points. I mean, that can really screw 
uh, a real estate deal up pretty quickly. And so I think that there's there's pieces of that that we always have to try to be thinking about in regards to what can go wrong and what are the the cons um, of these things. So the risk aspect of real estate, while uh, has been shown historically through the great financial crisis and and of recent, um, it, it, people have really short memories in regards to that. So I think it's really important just to kind of remember that real estate is not a get rich quick scheme. It's a get wealthy slow opportunity, right? And so I think that that's a, a piece that people also mis mistake uh, this business for. And um, one that I try to harp on quite a bit is just trying to think long term. And that's where all my mentors and, and successful investors I've I've networked with and I'm, you know, and, and friends with, they, they always are thinking about things from 10 to 15 years. But in a syndication, a lot of times that's not really how it's set up, right? I mean, you're set up there to buy an asset, fix it up and either, you know, get the investors their money back or do something else. And so um, the, the structure of a, and the market for a syndication can sometimes really be prohibitive in the actual long-term wealth building opportunities uh, for real estate as well. So I would just say that don't get caught in you have to do it, you know, for a five year hold period or something like that. Think about what really you want to do from a from an overall thesis standpoint and try to make sure that the investors that you work with are aligned with that vision. And hopefully uh, they are. And if they're not, they, they probably shouldn't come in the deal because even the worst thing is, is having a great deal doing very well with mad investors. That's about the worst thing that you can you can find. I got plenty of projects that, you know, maybe are a little bit behind or we've had some cost overruns on or things like that. Understood. But when you got a great cash flowing asset and you have investors that are still upset because you haven't sold but it's cash flowing and you have debt fixed for 10 years and they're still mad, that's not a good spot to be at. So just learning lessons with with values alignment and making sure that everybody understands um, that real estate, we can't just go and sell tomorrow uh, on an open market. That's right, especially like with what we've got going on today. I mean, there's there are still investors moving out there, but not quite like they were before because interest rates are higher, right? And and a lot of sellers don't want to sell at lower values because I mean, realistically, everything's worth probably a little bit less today because debt's more expensive. Um, and and you know, kind of like what you were saying, it's all risk reward balance, right? As a syndicator, yes, you you can get an outsized reward for for the amount of time and effort you're putting into a deal, but there's also outsized risk if things go wrong. So, Dave, you know, what are your thoughts on pros and cons for syndication? I, role as syndicator, you know, in my view, Logan touched a lot on that right there. I mean, legal right legal issues are are huge, and you, know, you got to be well prepared for how you're doing it. But syndicator is really getting an outside return for providing the service to LPs. So you might have good knowledge on the legal side, but you've got to learn some of the other sides, right? Either operations or finance or taking on debt. So I think doing the syndication part, it's it's really building a service organization that's going to provide a service to your LPs and help them achieve their investment goals. And as long as you can marry that together with you know, how you provide service and the LP investment goals. Logan was touching on, you know, they've got to, they've got to be happy with the end result. If it's successful and they're not happy, it's like, wait a minute, you got to, you know, that's kind of a service issue right there of, of how that was either pitched or put together or how did you structure? Because yeah, you, you don't want to have a win where everyone's mad. That doesn't work. 
So I think just providing service and what's the best way that you can do it. And that's going to, that's going to help have repeat LPs. Cause that's, you know, that's the, the best model is if you have repeat customers really in any business. So providing the service the best you can and using a lot of what Logan just talked on there right there is pretty spot on. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'll say too, is that, you know, you could have the best deal in the world and you're still going to have some people that think you could have done better or you should have, you know, sold faster or, you know, this and that and the other. And, and honestly, I mean, whenever I have those people, I just look at the majority of our investors who are like over the moon about the exit and, and how quick it was done and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you have a couple of investors here and there that get upset with how things were handled, just take them off the list. You know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of other people out there that are willing to give you money because you're, you're doing well. Um, I mean, we've never had investors get like really angry, uh, but I have had some that were like, hey, we were supposed to be in this for five years and we exited in 16 months. You know, what the hell? <laughs> now I've got to deal with this capital again. And it, you got to explain it to them. It's like, look, you know, I mean, we had an, an off-market offer that was, you know, way bigger than uh, what we were expecting. And it's the returns that you would have gotten over seven years today. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm sorry you got to deal with the capital now, but that's a good problem to have, right? And, and you know, as long as you're communicating with them, they'll kind of get it. Brian, from your perspective, what are the pros and cons? Yeah, I mean, after doing this for 12 years, we definitely have had LPs very upset with me. So Tyler, you have something to look forward to, um, <laughs> even if we, you do perform. I think I'll I'll kind of piggyback on top of both other everyone else's comments. You know, the upside to syndication is that there are 13 million accredited investors in America. The number moves around a little bit, but directionally. And less than 3% have exposure to direct real estate commercial investments, right? So huge opportunity set, very inefficient market. You know, you can go out there and meet a lot of people. You know, the downside is, I think going into these things, a lot of entrepreneurs and sponsors think, oh, I'll just put this deal together and it'll be great, et cetera. But what you're also doing, and this is kind of a question LPs should ask, I think, but GPs need to understand, is that you're investing into real estate and that deal has to do what you hope it does, but you're also starting a small business. And small businesses in America have about an 85% failure rate within 36 months. So not only do you have to get the deals right, but you also have to make sure that you have HR, tax, accounting, bookkeeping, marketing, yada, 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 yada. You've also get all that right and that's just really hard, right? Like people, businesses fail, even though you go in with the best intentions. So for me, a big realization, a big mistake I made early on was not putting enough resources into things that I, that weren't revenue generating uh, because it's such a tight business on the front end. There's only so many fees to go around. And then once you get past that choke point and you scale, then you need to keep putting money towards overhead. So for instance, we have like a best in class CRM, a best in class investor portal. We really spend a lot of time on our reporting. We, you know, do multimedia, right? So we'll do it written and video. We send out text notifications, all of these things to keep people in the loop on what's happening because they're expecting to be told. But it costs money and it takes time. And so I think this realization that you're not just a real estate investor, you're also a small business entrepreneur, has a whole host of other 
risks associated with it that I don't think a lot of people realize on the front end of these things. Yeah, I, that actually brings me to another point. I'm going to change the question because we had talked about, you know, how we've managed to scale these operations. I think Logan talked about that a little bit earlier. And, and honestly, like after you've got your first one done, you're starting to build a track record and you can go from there. I want to go back to a more beginner oriented question. And Dave, I'm going to lob this one over to you first. But, you know, if you had to start over in real estate syndication today, what would you do? What would you do differently? Or what would you wish you would have known? I, I following back up from a Logan, I wish I would have known some of the legal stuff to do on round one versus uh, round 100. You know, in my deals, a lot's changed over the years on how we structure them. But some of the early deals that didn't have the clearest or, or most current legal structure, you know, they were, they were a little challenging to, to get through the, even the sale process of how they work. So that's what I would have done probably differently starting out of the gates. Luckily I only had a four or five investors in my first deal. So it wasn't, it was, it wasn't overly complicated and I had good relationships with them. So I learned from that, but yeah, there was definitely a, a big learning curve on the legal side and those legal bills up front, you know, just to write an operating agreement or a partnership agreement, it's like, ah, oh, do I really want to spend the money here? You never, you, no one's like, man, this is a great deal on these, on these legal docs up front. You're never excited to write that check, but it's, it's gotta be something that's, that's pretty well thought out because that dictates how everything goes. If like Brian was saying, 85% of small businesses fail the operating agreement and partnership agreements are how you get out of those situations. I mean, you can have a bad agreement and it could take you years of lost time because you don't even know how to get out of it. So I think that stuff, although Man, it's painful. It's, it's painful kind of writing those checks for that stuff, but it's got to be in good shape. So I, I feel like I got through some of those hurdles pretty pretty luckily and they didn't turn into any kind of major disasters. But man, there's some there's some battles of stories out there of, of how that stuff goes south. Oh yeah. I mean, those docs, you know, you're you're spending ten to twenty thousand dollars or more, depending on, you know, what what type of deal you're putting together and I'm right there with you, man. I mean, my first deal, I was like, do we really like, do we really need to structure this as a syndication? Like, could we maybe just do a partnership? And, and the answer is obviously no. I mean, you could do that and get in trouble, but it's it's not worth the risk. And, you know, it's it's the best $20,000 you'll ever spend because it'll protect you from a multi-six-figure lawsuit or seven-figure lawsuit at some point. So, you know, those are the numbers you got to really think about when you're going through this. Brian, what about you? Yeah, I mean, there's too many. I made too many mistakes early on to probably go through them all here. But yeah, one, understanding that, um, and I'm a, an attorney, right? I'm a, I'm a recovering attorney. I should know better. But I had a third partner originally. And understanding that the operating agreement is kind of viewed through the lens of kind of death, disability, and divorce, right? And so you've got to go through this really painful thought ideation of what happens if my partner dies? What happens if we have a business divorce? What happens if he's like long-term disabled and I've got to figure out a way to get out of this? You've really got to paper those agreements early on. Another one would be not really appreciating the fact that when your investors are accredited investors like high net worth individuals, the tax component is going to be key. 
and not having that in-house, even though we can't give tax advice, not having a CPA on staff was a big mistake that we made early on just because so many of the decisions that our investors make are driven by taxes, which you know was completely understandable. And then the last and third one is to go back to what I said previously, you know, even if the deals are going well, if you don't have a really robust communication, investor relations reporting process, people's minds will go to the worst possible place, right? They will assume the darkest, deepest secrets of their hearts, and it's not really fun. You'll spend 10 times as much time telling them after the fact that everything's okay when you should have just had a monthly newsletter or an update or a call calendar or a text notification system put in place on the front end to tamp down just because it takes so much time. I have 650 plus active investors. Everyone has my cell phone. That's not sustainable, right? I can't do those calls. And so we have a lot of processes and procedures in place to communicate with them efficiently. And it's not a challenge now, but it was certainly something I gave short shrift to early on. And it was a, it was a huge mistake. Yeah. Those are some good points. Logan, I'll let you close us out. Yeah. I would just say this, and I'm so grateful that we set this up from, from the beginning, but I, I do see a lot of people kind of get in to the business without any organizational structure. And we have shifted that structure so many times, which has been confusing to some of our employees, but also we were figuring it out. But having some sort of organizational model like uh, the EOS model from Gino Wickman, uh, using the traction uh, kind of book and, and understanding that there is a visionary, there's an integrator, there's sales and marketing, there's, you know, there's HR and accounting, um, and there's operations. And so uh, I think that so many folks don't, like Brian said earlier, don't really look at it from a business uh, standpoint, but um, that's been extremely important for us. Like, where does asset management live within this organizational structure? Because then you start getting people uh, working on the same thing and uh, you know, you're kind of doing double work unless everybody's communicating really effectively. But more than that, I think it, it's important for employees to really understand uh, what their role and responsibility uh, are in the organization. I think that is so crucial. So um, early on, I'd say, you know, when we was just the three partners and, and one employee, uh, we started to, to really scale up uh, pretty fast. I think that the one mistake that we probably made was we, we added a lot of assets under management and didn't uh, add enough people on the back end of that business. And so whether that just be people to, you know, get the copier paper or, you know, just, just stuff like that. I mean, it was, we really could have used more resources early on uh, to, to really fuel that, that scalability and that growth. And so I think that's an important lesson to learn is if you are in the business of scaling right now, you know, you might not feel like all that work is there, but we just talked about legal. We just talked about taxes. We just talked about all of the unsexy or not so sexy parts of the business. That stuff can mount up really quickly. And then guess who's doing it? You are, and you're not out there serving your investors, working on your properties, looking for new opportunities, uh, doing all the things that you were really great at to get you to this point. So 
uh, making making sure you have an organizational structure. You can get to some person that is, uh, if you're not the chief operating officer, finding that person and or individual or partner who really thinks procedural uh, instead of more uh, of the visionary is extremely important. Who Not How by, uh, I think it's Dan Sullivan, is a fantastic read um, that talks a lot about this. So it's not, how do I solve this problem? Who do I need that can help me solve this problem? And if you think about that early on in your organization, I think you'll maybe remove or not get caught in some of those bottlenecks or choke points that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, take that acquisition fee on the first deal and use it to hire a team around you to to build out those processes because it'll make your life so much easier. Well, gentlemen, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. If you want to learn more about Brian, Logan, and Dave, their information is in the show notes. We'll be back with you guys in two weeks on September 11th at 2 p.m. Central Standard Time talking about raising investor capital. So we're going to give you some of our tips and tricks and kind of how we built out those systems around it. And uh, guys, again, appreciate y'all being here and we'll see y'all next time. This episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Podcast is brought to you by CRE Launch Pro. This online commercial real estate program is designed to take you from beginner to pro commercial real estate investor with access to all of my courses, our online community, and monthly group coaching calls. Learn how to confidently buy your first commercial property today at www.crelaunchpro.com.